Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a night sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Those words were written by Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel. He was reflecting on his memory as a teenager in the Nazi concentration camps. And it was that moment when he saw that intensity of suffering that he said murdered his God. But Wiesel wasn't the only one who endured the torments of a Nazi concentration camp. Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy also suffered in those camps. Christians from the Netherlands who were in the concentration camps because they had helped Jews escape. And although Corrie eventually survived, her sister Betsy succumbed to the torture and died in the camp. And before she died, Corrie writes of a time in which she leaned down to hear the labored whispers of her dying sister. And she said, we must tell them. Corey leaned down to her filthy cot to hear what is it that her sister was saying we must tell them. We must tell them what we have learned here. We must tell them, Betsy said, that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. How could it be that two people going through similar experiences of such intense suffering can come out, one saying, it murdered my God, and another one saying, His love is so deep that no suffering can plumb the depths of God's love for me. How is that even possible? How is it possible for, for one person's suffering to extinguish his hope in God and another person's suffering to inflame her hope in God, to fuel her hope in God? This is exactly what we see here in Romans chapter 8 because Paul introduces the topic of suffering in verse 17. It's actually a topic that he, he began to talk about way back in chapter 5. He, he brought up the whole issue of suffering because the chapters beginning in, verse, in chapter 5 of Romans, they deal with a believer's assurance. We have been saved, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the opening words of chapter 5 in Romans. And, and now Paul has been giving a series of assurances. How can we know that our relationship with God is settled, is secure? How can we know that? But now he deals with this problem square on. It's the problem of, of believers suffering. Because it could seem that the suffering that we experience in our lives would smother our hope. I mean, doesn't it seem like the things that you go through, God, why don't you just airlift me right out of the war zone of my suffering? Why don't you just, just bring down your divine helicopter and just, just pick me up and, and take me out and deliver me from this? And what Paul is saying here is that suffering serves a very important part in God's plan to make you who He wants you to be, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. 
in answer to the question, doesn't suffering like smother our hope? Doesn't it snuff out our hope? Instead, Paul is saying, no, it fuels our hope. And here's how, and here's why you can know. It has to do with these two ideas, suffering and glory. Suffering and glory. If you know something about your suffering as a Christian, and you know something about your glory, you'll understand why it is that your suffering, far from smothering your hope, actually can fuel your hope. There are some things we need to understand about our present suffering and about the future glory. Instead of eradicating hope, suffering fuels it. Instead of smashing our confidence against the rocks of suffering, actually, it is the, the winds which fill the sails of hope so that we could arrive at the destination God wants us to. So let's look at this idea of suffering that we see here in verse 17. Let me point out, first of all, what it is not. This is not suffering to atone for our sins. Okay, sometimes we could get this idea, I'm suffering, God is making me pay for my sin. Now, it is possible that your suffering is a result of something you did, some sin you did. It's possible that, in fact, it is a reality that all suffering is ultimately the result of sin, right? We all are suffering because Adam and Eve chose to live life independent from God. That's the explanation for all suffering. But the suffering that's being talked here about here is not suffering that pays for sin. Why? There's only one person suffering who can pay for sin, right? And that's the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our suffering does not have redemptive value. Our suffering does not save us. Paul is not referring to suffering that saves. What is he talking about then? He's talking about the kind of suffering that comes packaged in life in a fallen world. This is the kind of suffering that we encounter. It's the fall off your bicycle. It's the broken engagement. It's the miscarriage. It's your unemployment. It's your wayward child. It's your loneliness. It's your cancer. It's your deepest heartache. These kinds of suffering that come woven in with life in a fallen world. Paul's saying, for a believer in Christ, this is the suffering that you encounter, just like everybody else suffers. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're exempt from suffering. But it means that your suffering is of a different quality. Not because it's less, in fact, it may be more. But there's something about the suffering of a believer in Christ that is radically different. And how is it different? We see this in three ways three ways in which the suffering of a Christian is different than other suffering. First of all, it is different because it is temporary. You see in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this, what? Present time. The suffering of a believer is different because it is temporary. That's why I had us read for 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in which Paul calls it a momentary light affliction. It's just 
for a moment in light of eternity, if only you could back up and, and into eternity and look way, way back at your suffering right now, you will see that it was just a blip on the screen. It's momentary. It's temporary. And contrast that with the suffering of unbelievers, which is sadly not temporary. Our suffering as believers will end. The tragedy for those who don't belong to Christ, who haven't trusted in Christ, is that their suffering will not end. Christian suffering is temporary. But here's another, another aspect about our suffering that's different. It's different because it's suffering with Christ. Look at verse 17. Paul writes, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is so important to get, that as a, as a believer in Christ, your suffering is not alone. Your suffering is different because it is with Christ. Translated literally, it would sound something like this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, provided we co-suffer with Him in order that we may also be co-glorified with Him. For a Christian, your suffering is different because you're not suffering alone, you're suffering with Christ. But this suffering with Christ is not, is not just so that we have company in our suffering, okay? Jesus is doing more than just commiserating with us. That's not the purpose of Jesus being with us in our suffering, although that does provide a great deal of comfort. But what it means that we are suffering with Christ is that our suffering is not meaningless, just like His suffering was not meaningless. Our suffering is going somewhere. It has an intended conclusion. It has a finality to it that is more glorious than the suffering itself. And so, we suffer with Jesus we know that our suffering is not meaningless. That takes us to this third way in which our suffering is different. Christian suffering leads to glory. We are co-sufferers with Him. We suffer with Christ. That means that Jesus Himself transforms our suffering. Jesus can take the suffering that feels like a boulder that's crushing you and He turns it into a stepping stone. That's what it means to suffer with Jesus. It means that He has the power to transform your suffering into something glorious. He transforms our suffering. It leads to glory. It is a path to a glory so dazzling that it makes the present suffering pale like stars before a noonday sun. We find the same idea in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. I'll read this to you. Listen to the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced and what it led to and how that transforms our suffering. The writer of Hebrews says this, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To return to the original question, how is it that suffering doesn't just smother our hope? 
How is it that our suffering, instead of smothering hope, fuels our hope? It is this. Our suffering is different because it's temporary and because it is suffering that is with Christ and because it leads to glory. These boulders are transformed into stepping stones. But this is not even the tip of the iceberg because we've just talked about suffering so far, right? Remember I said there are two concepts that we need to understand. The first is suffering. It's temporary. It's suffering with Christ, and it leads to glory in order that we may also be glorified with Him. But we must understand something about this glory. And the question we want to ask is, what could be so great that would completely eclipse our present suffering? You feel suffering right now? Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the pain of that? Have you experienced things that you look back on and you think, I don't understand why I went through this? Well, what Paul is saying, what the Word of God is saying is that there is a glory that is so immense that completely outweighs that suffering. It makes the suffering, it's not even worth comparing, you see this in verse 18, not even worth comparing with the glory that is to come. How great is this glory? Before I tell you what this glory is, I want to explain to you how absolutely magnificent and dazzling this glory is, this glory that could outweigh our suffering. It is so great that all creation is longing for it. So when Paul wants to heighten the glory that should outweigh our present suffering, he's saying this is how great it is. It's bigger than you because for untold ages, this entire universe has been longing for this to happen. Whatever glory is going to outweigh your suffering is so great that the universe is groaning for it. Look at this. In verse 19, Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Skip down to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only is the whole creation groaning for it, but we are groaning for it. Look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's so great that the creation is groaning for it, that we ourselves are groaning for it. It's so great that the Spirit Himself is groaning for it. Look at this in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The creation groans for it. We groan for it. The Spirit groans for it. Also, God orchestrates all events to accomplish this glory. Look at verse 28. It's important to understand verse 28 with a verse we love and we cherish and we rehearse to ourselves, but it's important to see it in the flow of context. Paul is talking about a coming glory, some purpose that God has for our lives, and this is one way we know that this glory is magnificent enough to outweigh our present suffering. It's so great that God works all things together for this good for those who are called according to His purpose. So whatever this glory is, it is so great that God is orchestrating every detail of your life for that to happen. And it is so great that God has planned it from eternity past. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. How is this glory described? I want you to see the various ways in which Paul 
tells us how this glory is described. And again, I'm, I'm going to tell you explicitly what it is, okay? Just, just wait for it. But right now, I want to heighten for you the immensity of this glory before I tell you exactly what this glory is. In verse 18, it's expressed as the glory that is to be revealed to us. Look at verse 19. It's described as the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, it's described as the glory of the children of God. Verse 23, it's described as our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And verse 29, it's described as being conformed to the image of His Son. And verse 30 and in verse 17, it's described as glorified. So this word glorified is kind of like the book ends to this, this section. And together, these descriptions reveal that the glory that outshines our suffering, the glory that is so magnificent that in perspective it makes our suffering not even worth comparing to it, is the glory of being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the glory. And being like Jesus is the only way in which you can enjoy the glory of God. Only by becoming like Christ can we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, if in your mind when I said, now this is the glory, it's becoming like Jesus, maybe some of you thought, oh, is that all? But let me remind you that this is the very purpose for which you've been created. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which you cannot do apart from being like His Son, Jesus Christ. Imagine that you were invited to a banquet, the most splendid banquet you can possibly conceive of. Think of all the people that you look up to. Think of maybe your heroes in your life, and all those heroes can be at that banquet. The finest food, the most elegant atmosphere. The, 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 the best environment y- your mind can come up with. And as you make your entrance into that banquet room with all those magnificent people dressed up in their finest, instead of seeing smiles and looks of approval on their faces, you see looks of horror and dismay. And you catch a reflection of yourself in a mirror and you realize that you have shown up in your pajamas and you look absolutely a mess. It's it's horribly embarrassing. What could have been the most thrilling experience of your life ended up being the most mortifying experience of your life. Why? Because you were not prepared for it. If that would be the case on a human level, imagine what it would be to stand before a thrice holy God, so powerful that He spoke the universe into existence, so holy that no sin can stand in His presence. How could you stand in the presence of a God like that without being perfectly holy? You see, we need to be like His Son, Jesus Christ, because only Christ is the one about whom the Father says, 
this is my beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased. And only by becoming like Jesus can God look at us and say, that is my Son, I am well pleased in Him. That is my daughter, I am well pleased in her. See, only by becoming perfectly like Jesus can we stand in the presence of God with joy and not terror, with delight and not despair. You see, becoming like Christ, it is, it is the glory to which God has destined those who believe in Jesus Christ. And that explains also why the creation groans for this. Why is it that all creation is groaning for that time when you and I as believers will be transformed into the image of Christ? Creation groans for that time because it is because we rebelled against God that creation is in the fix it's in. That's what Paul is saying, that it's been in bondage to corruption because of the sin of human beings. Even the creation itself cannot fulfill its God-given purpose. That's why creation groans. This explains why we groan for it, because we have in ourselves the Spirit of God telling us, you're a child of God, you're a child of God. That's what we looked at last time, remember? We have the Spirit of God in us by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, the Spirit is telling us, you're a son or you're a daughter of God, but we look around us and we look at ourselves and we think, but I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. And it makes us long for that time when we will be like Christ. That is the glory that we long for, and it is not a glory that comes from us. It is reflected glory. It's like the glory of the moon. The only light the moon has is the light that bounces off from the sun. The only glory that we have, it's not a glory that emanates from ourselves, but it's a glory that's reflected from God and back to God. That's what Paul is saying to him is all the praise and glory. This explains why the Spirit himself groans for it, because the Spirit was sent as a pledge of our final reward. The Spirit of God wants you to become like Jesus Christ. And God is orchestrating all the details of your life, even your suffering, for that final glory. So why does our suffering fuel our hope for future glory? Why is it that we can say, hey, this suffering, it doesn't, it doesn't smother my hope, it fuels it? Because I know what God is doing with my suffering. He's making me look more like Jesus. He's making me more like His Son. As I was studying this, brothers and sisters, my, my heart was so full at some times, I just, I just literally had to stop. I, just, I, I almost couldn't take thinking about that day when I will stand before God, not in my sin anymore, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The thought that God is using even the sufferings that you and I face, the, the, the things that, that you are going through. And as your pastor, I've had the privilege to get to know you better and to be involved in your lives and, and know some of the suffering that you're going through and be convinced that God is using these circumstances to make you, brother, you, sister, more like His Son, Jesus Christ. That is a good purpose. I thought, is this real? Is this real? Does it work? Is this just some fantasy that people are feeding to Christians so they could cope with our miserable existence? Or is this real? Well, look at the lives of people who have gone through real suffering. Look at a man like Horatio Spafford, a businessman and, and lawyer. All his investments were destroyed in the Chicago fire of 1871. 
And if that weren't enough suffering, two years later, his wife and four daughters were crossing the Atlantic to visit him. When their ship collided with another ship, and he received a telegram from his wife that said, Saved alone. He lost his four daughters. And yet Horatio Spafford, after that, could pen the words, It is well with my soul. Is this hope or not? And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Does that speak hope to you? Does that speak anticipation of the glory? To, to me, that says this man knew that the glory that awaited him would outshine any suffering that he's experiencing. And my friends, that could be true of you too. And I could think of the suffering that, that my loved ones have gone through. And you could think of the suffering that, that your loved ones have gone through. Christians, believers in Christ, instead of smothering their hope, the, the, the very valley of their suffering has given them a, a broader glimpse of the love of God. You, you want to know how powerful God's love is? You want to know how amazingly it can defeat and overcome your suffering this is what Paul is saying at the end of Romans 8 when he lists a bunch of really difficult things. Just look at these in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists some really difficult things. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I would say those are difficult things. And yet what he says is not that God merely pushes these out of the way for us. Paul says in all these things we are more than conquerors. Not despite all these things. Not God is going to flatten your circumstances. He is going to turn these things into the very tools that will make you like Jesus. Now that's love. That's power. That's hope. That's glory. The brightest gems that a believer collects are the ones in the darkest valleys. I didn't know how much God's love could sustain a person until I saw him give hope to my brother and his wife while my brother was diagnosed with cancer. I didn't know how God's love could sustain a person in suffering until I saw my own grandfather dying of cancer and his final words repeating over and over again were words about the love of God, urging his children and grandchildren to love and serve Jesus. It's not that suffering makes a person doubt God's love for them. It's suffering can fuel our hope for that kind of glory. Is this real? It's absolutely real. And you, my friends, know by experience that there is no pit so deep that God's love is deeper still. Let us learn to see our suffering in the light of this glory. Let me ask you two questions just by way of application. Two questions. Please consider these closely. Do you see your suffering 
as pointless or purposeful. In other words, do you see your suffering as a detour in your life or as God's loving plan to make you more like Jesus? Do you see your suffering as pointless or purposeful? Second, do you value Christ-likeness more than anything else? Because our tendency is to want to escape it to quicken it instead of recognizing God is using this to make me more like Jesus. Do you see your suffering as pointless or purposeful? Do you value Christ-likeness over everything else? It is true that suffering can fuel our hope for the future glory.